the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus radically changes a person's life when that message is believed. So as we trust in Christ, we come to experience, we come to know the forgiveness of sins. We come to know the new life that God provides for us through all that Jesus has done. A Christian is a changed person. He gets new life from God. A few weeks ago, I explained this by uh, using the analogy that by nature, we come into this world and because of sin, we have a bad record in heaven and we have a bad heart on earth. And we need our record changed and we need our hearts changed. When you trust Jesus Christ as Lord, all of the life and death and resurrection of Christ, everything accomplished in that gets credited to your account in heaven. So his life of obedience to God's commandments, the righteousness that he earned by being obedient becomes your righteousness through faith. And his death on the cross in behalf of sin, he wasn't dying for his own sin because he had none. His death for sin gets credited to you to pay for your sin. And in heaven, your record is wiped clean. In heaven, you are now counted as righteous. But when you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that does happen. But that's not all that happens. When you trust him, your life is not only justified before God, but he also begins a work inwardly in you that results in your complete transformation on the day that Christ will return. God changes our hearts as we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He does this by sending his Holy Spirit into our lives to take up residence in us. And the Spirit comes, he grants new life to us, and he lives with us so we're no longer living by ourselves anymore in this world. And through his ministry in us, he increasingly conforms us to Christ. Every Christian then has the power to live a holy life because of the Spirit. Not perfectly, because sin remains in us, but purposefully, intentionally, with aspirations and desires to grow in holiness. Why? Because the Spirit of God works in a Christian to change him from the inside out, making us new creations. Another way to describe all this is to say that Christians are people who live their lives in the Spirit. In the Spirit. That's the theme that the Apostle Paul takes up in Romans chapter 8. In our last studies of this letter, we just began to look at the opening verses of Romans chapter 8. And today what I want to do is to go back to Romans 8 to continue our study to investigate further this theme of life in the Spirit. Our text will begin in verse 5 of Romans 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll see this on page 944. What I want us to do is to zero in on verses 5 through 8. But in order that we might gain some continuity and see some of the context, I want to begin reading in Romans 8 verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 11. But when we get to verse 5, 
just make a note that that's going to be the beginning of our text all the way down through verse 8. So please find a copy of God's Word because we're just going to work through these verses together today. And if you have it in front of you, you'll be able to see exactly what God inspired Paul to write in this portion of Holy Scripture. So follow along as I read from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read all the way down to verse 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christians can be holy because we live life in the spirit and not in the flesh. What Paul begins to do in verse 5 is to show the foundation for what he has just taught in verse 4. So if you look at those verses, you'll see this is the way his reasoning flows. God sent Jesus into the world as a real man, but not a sinful man. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he says. And he did this because of sin, our sin, the fact that we have sin that we cannot atone for. We have sin that we cannot remove from ourselves. And as a real man, Jesus condemned sin. How? By laying down his life on the cross and enduring God's wrath against sin. He died for sin in his crucifixion. And he did this, Paul says in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, so that we might personally and practically be holy. That is, that we might live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now again, let me just underscore, Paul's not talking about perfection here. He's talking about direction. He's talking about a new orientation of life that now belongs to us because of what Christ has done and how the Spirit takes what Christ has done and applies it to us and works it in us by his indwelling presence. So beginning in verse 5, Paul starts to explain how all of this is possible. And in short, what he says is it's possible because of this. Christians can live holy lives because we live in the spirit, not in the flesh. 
You can see that Paul contrasts life in the spirit and life in the flesh starting in verse 4. And he does it again in verse 5. He does it in verse 6. And then he elaborates on life in the flesh in verses 7 and 8. And in doing so, he shows us how serious the situation is for those who are still in the flesh. And he's talking about everyone by nature, everyone who's born into this world in sin. As we look at what we're being taught in these verses, I want to call attention to something that I've repeatedly pointed out in the study of Romans, especially as we've entered into this eighth chapter, to distinguish between descriptive language and prescriptive language. The verses before us this morning in our text, verses 5 through 8, are descriptive. That is, they are indicative. Uh, They're not imperative. They state facts. They tell us what is. They're not admonishing us about what we ought to do. But in telling us what is, we are encouraged to live differently. Because we have now revealed to us what God says is true of us, and we need to live up to that truth. We need to embrace it and to accept it by faith and order our lives accordingly. There are three lessons I want to point out in verses 5 through 8 of this chapter about life in the Spirit. The first is the nature of life in the Spirit. And the second is the consequences of life in the spirit. And the third is the contrast between life in the spirit and life in the flesh. So look at verse five and see how Paul identifies the nature of this life in the spirit. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. That little word for cues us into what Paul is doing in his argument. He is explaining how the righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled in those who live according to the spirit. And he does it by contrast. He is making a contrast between life in the flesh, life in the spirit. We'll look at that contrast more fully in a few moments. He tells us what it is is like what it means to live by the spirit and and note that the spirit here is the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about your own internal life. He's talking about the third person of our triune God life in the spirit is lived inside out. That is, it emerges from who we are internally. Paul says those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. They have something going on inside of them in their thinking to live according to the spirit is to submit to the spirit's direction. It is to have your thoughts informed, ordered, shaped, corrected by what the spirit says. And Paul describes this way of living in Galatians 525 as keeping in step with the spirit. So the Spirit has revealed to us in Scripture the will of God. The Spirit speaks in the Scripture. And we have thoughts, every one of us have thoughts, to the degree that we engage our thoughts and let our thoughts order our lives contrary to or indifferent to what the Spirit has said in the Scripture, then we are falling back into that pattern of living from which we were delivered. But... As we walk according to the spirit, we set our minds on the things of the spirit, the things that have been revealed to us by the spirit 
in Scripture. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 is a wonderful commentary on this passage we're looking at in Romans 8. And I would encourage you to make a note of that, to go back and read that, to see how Paul elaborates this idea, this contrast between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. In Galatians 5, 16, he says that we should walk by the spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, making the exact same contrast we find in Romans 8. But he elaborates there what life in the Spirit looks like. He does so by describing what he calls there the fruit of the Spirit. You've heard this if you've been in churches uh, very long at all. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So to live according to the Spirit is to have these Spirit-inspired virtues characterizing your life more and more. It is to see the fruit of the Spirit being born in your life as you think, set your mind on the things of the Spirit more and more. So, brothers and sisters, here's a very good way to evaluate your spiritual life. Do you want to know how you're doing spiritually? We should. We should all desire to have checkups and to examine and see where we are in our spiritual journey, if we are growing in proper ways, if there are deficiencies that need a special attention. Well, here's a good way to see how well we are keeping in step with the Spirit as we honestly assess the Spirit's fruit in our lives. So ask yourself, how loving am I? How joyful am I? How peaceful am I? How patient am I? Ask yourself that the next time somebody cuts you off at a four-way stop and cheats and goes in front of you. How kind am I? How good? How faithful am I? How gentle? How self-controlled am I? To live according to the Spirit is to live in a way that these virtues increasingly characterize our lives. We embrace them. We're not ashamed of being known this way. We're ashamed at our deficiencies. And we want to overcome our deficiencies. And we never sign a peace treaty with our deficiencies and say, well, you know, nobody's perfect, and so it's okay if I fly off the handle at my wife. No. No, we cry out, God help me. By your spirit, work in me. I don't want to live any longer in the way that I gave my life to before you found me. I want to grow in my relationship to you. I want the spirit's work in me to be more powerful. Well, how does that happen? How do you do this? Well, Paul tells us that it begins in the mind. Set your mind on the things of the spirit. Verse five says to set the mind is literally to be minded. That's the word that he uses here. In the first century, this word was used to describe joining political parties or aligning yourself with a national identity. So the Greeks would use this word to describe joining the party of the Romans, taking side with the Romans. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is to align yourself and you say, okay, I agree. This is right. These are good. This is how I want to be, how I want to live. Jesus is teaching in the upper room the night he was betrayed, sheds light on this. As we think about what are the things of the spirit, 
in John 15, 26, he says, the spirit will bear witness about me. And later in John 16, 14, he says, the spirit will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The things of the spirit then are those things that are revealed to us in scripture that show us the truth, the truth about God, the truth about ourselves. Most importantly, the truth about Jesus Christ. You set your mind on those things when you submit yourself to what God has revealed to us and you take him at his word and you order your life accordingly to set your mind on the things of the spirit is to be spiritually minded. It's to believe and think on those things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, as Paul describes them and mentions them in Philippians 4, verse 8. It is having our minds renewed regularly by the word of God in such a way that our lives are increasingly transformed so that we change. We really change. We grow. And it's not something that is manufactured. It is something that happens because of God's spirit at work within us. Paul's highlighting the fact that when a person becomes a Christian, God changes him on the inside. A Christian is a converted person, a convert. He has converted from one way of life to another way of life. This is at the heart of what it means to repent. In the New Testament, the word repent literally means to change your mind. It, it means that you acknowledge that the way you used to think and live is wrong because now you have seen what is right, what is true, and you renounce that and you set yourself on the pathway of truth that is revealed by God. To keep in step with the Spirit, you increasingly submit your thinking to what God says. Being a real Christian is not merely doing right things. It is far more than external behavior. It's not less than that, but it is more than merely keeping a moral code. It's a new mindset. It's a mindset of a person who is being taught by the Holy Spirit that he is a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the only savior that we have in this world. A Christian is a person who has been taught to believe that the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is what is needed in order to be reconciled to God. And having been taught that, believes it, stakes his life on it, and bows before Jesus Christ as Lord. Has that ever happened to you? Can you honestly say today that yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and you are trusting him has God ever changed you from the inside out to put a finer point on it has God taught you that you're a sinner would you deny that or would you say yes that's true I am a sinner has God taught you that Jesus is your only hope of salvation would you acknowledge that and say yes I, I know that is true do you Believe that you need his life of obedience to God's commandments for your righteousness before God. You need his death on the cross to pay for your sins you've committed against God. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that? That he's alive 2,000 years later? 
Do you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord? Are you willing to say that? Well, if so, you're a Christian. This doesn't happen naturally. This is God's work in you by His Spirit to lead you to see and to confess that which is true and to entrust yourself as Christ. As Christ is your Savior. If you can't say that, if that's not you, then friend, praise God you're here today. He's brought His Word to you. He's brought you to His Word so that you can hear what He says is true. So that as your mind has been set upon things contrary to what God says, you can receive that challenge, that conviction by His Spirit to recognize this is what God says, this is how I've lived. And in hearing that, my prayer has been and is now that you will acknowledge that you've been wrong, acknowledge that you have sinned against your creator and renounce your sin and bow before Christ and trust Christ as your Lord. Because God will have you. God will accept you if you turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus. And that's our desire. That's why this church exists. We want to see more and more people come to know the true and living God through faith in Christ. So I admonish you, trust him now. You don't have to jump through a hoop. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to do anything physical. Where you are, as you are, from your heart, trust Jesus Christ as Lord. He will save you. I'd be delighted to talk to you about that after the service or any of our other members here at the church would be happy to do so as well. Because we want you to know Christ. Well, this is what we see in verse 5 about the nature of life in the Spirit. Let's look now at verse 6 and see what this passage teaches us about the consequences of life in the Spirit. Paul writes in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Again, he teaches by way of contrast. And we'll look at the negative side of that contrast momentarily. But for now, just notice what he says about the results of setting your mind on the Spirit. You see it? Two words, life and peace. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. Life. Spiritual life. Life in fellowship with God. Life as Jesus himself taught it. For example, in John 17, verse 3, in his high priestly prayer, when he prays for his disciples that they would have life. And here is life eternal, he said, that they know you, the true and the living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Or when he described his purpose in coming into the world in John 10, 10, he said, I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. This is what Paul is thinking of here. It's what Jesus said he came to do. It's what is available in him. It's life. It's being reconciled to your creator. It's discovering the, the reason that you exist and beginning to experience existence the way God has provided it for you in his son. Peace. What is this peace? It's a blessing that comes from having life. It's the subjective experience of the objective reality that takes place when you are reconciled to God. In Romans 5.1, 
Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're trusting Christ, you are no longer at enmity with God. You're reconciled. There is peace between you and God. That is objectively true. What Paul's talking about here is the experience of that objective reality in your subjective life. As he mentions in Philippians 4, 7, when he says the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace that can't be explained, that peace that enables you to stand when everything seems to be crumbling around you, that peace that helps you to go to sleep at night when there are a thousand things that would otherwise keep you awake. It's the peace that you have from knowing God and knowing that you have been reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus. R.C. Sproul calls this one of the best kept secrets of the human race. That in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we have life and peace. Because everybody's looking for life and peace. Too Too many people think that they can find it by drugs or booze or illicit sex, entertainment. Some seek it through success, money, various experiences, education. Fame. But here, God's word tells us life and peace is available in Christ, and we experience it as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. It's this kind of peace that enabled Jesus to sleep soundly in that storm tossed boat while his apostles were scared out of their minds. He had his mind set on the things of the Spirit. This is what enabled Paul to look on all the trials and hardships that he lists in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he thought he was going to die in Asia, he describes it. And chapter 4, when he goes through a litany of difficulties that come to him and the other apostles. And then he refers to them as slight momentary affliction. How do you do that? You have your mind set on the things of the Spirit. He says, those afflictions will ultimately work in me an eternal weight of glory. How did he do that? Well, he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You set your mind on the things of the spirit. It doesn't mean you close your eyes to the realities you've got to deal with day in and day out. You just see them in the light of what the spirit of God's revealed in the word. And you know that there's always more going on than the immediate message that comes to you from your circumstances, from your experience. Brothers and sisters, so much of the Christian life hinges upon getting our minds right. Learning to think rightly. Learning to reorient our thinking around the truth that we're taught by the Spirit of God, in the Word of God, concerning the Son of God. Life and peace come to those who have this Christian mindset. It comes to those who have a a Christian view of the world. I, I love going across the bridges of the Caloosahatchee, going into Fort Myers. And very often there are sailboats out there. And it's fun to watch sailboats, especially when there's a class 
of new sailors that are being taught. And if you've ever watched them, if you've ever seen two sailboats out there, and one is being uh, guided by skilled sailors, and the other, you conclude, they're not really that skilled. And you see a wind blow, and you see the one that's being led by skilled sailors just going smoothly through the wind. And the other one's just being driven. I mean, it's like it can't do anything. And you, you see the guys on deck, they're panicking. They're trying to figure out what to do next. But they're just driven wherever the wind blows. What's the difference? Well, the difference is how the sails are set. The difference is how the keel is set. And the experienced sailor knows how to set the sails so that even when the wind is driving right into him, he can go forward into the wind. But those who don't know how to set the sails properly, they're just blown around wherever the wind will take them. That's true in our lives as well. If you have your mind set on the things of the Spirit, you're humble enough to open yourself up to what the Word says, to learn more and more of what God has revealed in Scripture, then when the tempests and the storms of this life come, they may bring real sorrow, real heartache, real grief, but they won't destroy you. They won't knock you off course. Why? Because you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and the Spirit is revealed in the Word that God is doing things in this. He is working in you an eternal weight of glory as you continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, all the hardships, all the sorrows, all the difficulties in life, though they may disrupt us temporarily, though they do bring genuine, genuine pain and regret, know this, in Christ Jesus, they are designed by your good heavenly father to get you further down the road toward heaven. Set your mind on the things of the spirit. Believe that. Well, the nature of the life in the spirit involves our inner Self. It means setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. The consequences of doing this is life and peace. And then finally, let's look at the contrast that Paul draws between life in the Spirit and life in the flesh, especially as we see it in those last two verses, 7 and 8. If you look at verse 5, he says, To live according to the flesh is to set your mind on the things of the flesh. Uh, theologian John Murray says the flesh is human nature as corrupted and directed and controlled by sin. To set your mind on the things of the flesh is to limit your thinking, limit your outlook based on your, what your corrupted mind can conceive in this fallen world. To live according to the flesh is to just lower your horizon and is to live and evaluate as if there's no God. So you see things and you make accurate judgments about the reality that's right in front of you, but it's incomplete because you've forgotten God. You've forgotten that there's more going on than what you can measure with your senses. Jesus uses this very same language that Paul uses here when Jesus rebukes Peter at Caesarea Philippi. You remember that in Matthew chapter 16? I mean, Peter just made this great confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus commends him and says, the, the Father from on high has revealed this to you. But then immediately after that, Jesus says, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter can't take it. 
And so Peter says, no way, Lord. You remember what Jesus said to him? Let me read it to you. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In that moment, Peter had forgotten who Jesus was. In that moment, he had lost sight of the very truth that had been revealed to him just a few minutes before by God the Father. And so he's making his judgments according to the flesh. He's forgotten God. We tend to do this as well, don't we? Regularly. We're tempted to do this. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christian, do you believe that you have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places? Do you believe that? Then why do we so often fall into patterns of thinking like, I don't have a blessed life. My life doesn't experience blessing. Or Ephesians 4, or chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christian, do you believe that right now you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? Do you believe that's what the Bible says, what the Spirit says? And yet how often do we fall into those ways of thinking of, poor me, how disadvantaged I am. Look what I don't have. Look how I'm being neglected. What's going on when we think like this? What's going on is that we are forgetting to set our mind on the things of the spirit, and we're setting our mind on the things of the flesh. We're looking only to those things that can be seen, and we're not remembering the unseen realities. The consequences of this, verse 6, is death. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's to be separated from God. This is how we all are by nature. We come into this world And as you continue on in this world without being reconciled to God, you are living in spiritual death. You don't have the peace that is available in Christ. You don't have peace with God. You're being left to your own self, your own resources. That's what it means to set your mind on the flesh, to have death. The contrast is explained more fully in verses 7 and 8. These two verses, verses 7 and 8 of Romans 8, they are full of, of theological importance. They are jam-packed with insight to understand the true situation, the true deadly circumstances that those who come into the world as sinners, which is all of us by nature, the situation that we face. Look at what Paul says here. He's talking about people that are still enslaved to sin who are not converted. And he says in verse 7 that Such people are enemies of God. Let me read verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot be. Again, he's referring to unbelievers. He's referring to how we all are by nature when we come into this world. He says, those in the flesh are hostile to God. Now, that's an adjective for us in English. But in the language of the New Testament, which Paul wrote, he uses a noun. It's not hostile, it's hostility. 
Some of the older translations rightly render it enmity, enmity. What he's saying is that by nature, because of sin, we come into this world not in some kind of spiritual no man's land, not in a neutral zone. We come into the world at enmity with God, having hostility with God. Why? Why is this? Why is the mind that is set on the flesh hostile to God? He tells us it does not submit to God's law. Such people live according to their own standards. They figured out what they think is right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. And they order their lives accordingly. They follow their own ideas. He goes on and he says something even more severe. It's not just that that mind does not submit to God's law. It cannot submit to God's law cannot submit to God's law. That doesn't mean that unbelievers can't do things that are relatively good. They can be philanthropic. They can be kind-hearted. They can be good neighbors. But they cannot submit to God's law in the way that he requires us to submit to his law, which is completely, perfectly, which is in faith. They can't obey his commandments in faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him diligently. You see, all of the good efforts of those outside of Christ to do good things in this world, they do not please God. Why? Because those good things are not done in faith. They're not done in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so no matter what good things people might do that we look at and applaud and we say, well, that makes the world a better place or that eases difficulties or that promotes the welfare of the society. And we can say all of those things. We need to understand that in evaluating them in the light of what God says, they don't please God because they're not done in faith. This is a devastating critique of how desperate an unbeliever's situation is. Sin has left us by nature, all of us, depraved. What theologians call totally depraved. That doesn't mean that sinners are as bad as they can possibly be. That's not true of anybody. But it does mean that by nature, sinners are affected by sin in every aspect of their lives. Their minds are enslaved to sin. Their affections are enslaved to sin. Their wills are enslaved to sin. And so they're helpless to save themselves. They're helpless to do what God requires. Sin takes people captive. It puts us in shackles. It keeps people from living as we ought to live because by nature, there's no moral ability to do what God commands. It's a desperate situation. Do you see that word cannot? Verse 7, verse 8. It's actually two words in the language of the New Testament. And those words mean no ability. There's a lot of theological importance tied to that little word can, that little word ability. And we ought to help each other, and especially we ought to help our children to 
learn good theology by simply understanding the meaning of that word can and the word cannot. You do this by not letting the word can be confused with the word may. So, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. Can is a word of ability. May is a word of permission. And we need to teach our children, remind each other, that there's a difference between permission and ability. And we drove this point home with our kids when they were younger. They can tell you some, what I think are funny, they might think horror stories about some of that. Uh, they would come and say, you know, Dad, can I go outside? And I'd, well, sure you can. And they'd take off, whoa, what are, you, what are you doing? Well, I'm going outside. Well, you don't have permission to do that. Well, you just told me that I could. I said, well, yeah, you asked me if you could. You got two legs, you got two arms, you can open the door. So I know you can do it. That's not the question. You need permission. And they'd roll their eyes, may I go outside? It, it, make a game of it, parents, but do it because you will teach your children good theology or you'll save them from bad theology. So when they read a verse like Romans 7, 8, 7, and 8, they'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The mind cell in the flesh cannot please God, doesn't have the ability to please God. It's a vital theological point that Paul is making here. People who are still in sin, who are unconverted, are slaves to sin. They don't have the ability in themselves to make themselves right with God. They cannot submit to God's law. They cannot please God. So how in the world is anybody in that situation ever converted? How does anybody ever escape this desperate situation that sin has placed us in? We escape by the power of God in his grace, and sending his spirit to give us new life. We escape by the new birth. <laughs> the spirit of God coming and opening up our eyes and, and setting free our affections and setting free our wills so that we see Christ and we turn from our sin and we trust Christ. It is God's grace at work to us that gives us new birth. And that's how sinners are converted. They turn as they see Christ, they see their sin, they desire Christ, they trust Christ because of the Spirit's work in them. The Spirit loves to do that when the Word of God is being taught as it is now. In, in gatherings like this, the Spirit of God loves to come and bring the Word and to begin to challenge your thinking, convict you of ways that you've been thinking wrongly, living wrongly, and to draw you out of those ways, changing your mind, changing your affections, so that you do begin to realize how desperate your situation is, how amazing God's grace to you is in Christ, and you trust Christ. And again, friend, if you're here having never considered these things before, would you consider them today? Would you take to heart what God is saying to you in his word and recognize your need for the Savior and turn from your sin and trust Christ. Throw yourself on Christ. You'll find him to be a great Savior for great sinners. He delights in saving sinners like you and me. When that happens, you'll find yourself translated from the domain of sin into the domain of the Spirit. You'll no longer desire to live after the flesh, just your own abilities you'll begin to experience life in the Spirit, new life, new peace, new joy, new purpose, life in right relationship with God. 
This is how Christians can live holy lives. This is how we pursue holiness. It's because of the Spirit's work in us. We live in the Spirit. We no longer live in the flesh. Again, doesn't mean we no longer sin. We will fight sin in our lives until we draw our last breath. We'll look at that later in Romans chapter 8 as Paul addresses it specifically. But it does mean, brothers and sisters, it does mean that we consciously, intentionally seek to live in the Spirit by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. Recognizing that because of what God's done for us in Christ, what the Spirit's taught us, we have life. We have peace with God. And we can experience that peace more and more. If you don't know that life, you don't know that peace, don't you want it? Don't you want it? Well, it's yours. It's for you as you turn from sin and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for not leaving us in our sin. We thank you for your faithfulness to us and giving us your word and sending your spirit into the world to teach us the word. Please come and and teach us these truths so that as your people, we will know more and more what it means to live in the spirit, to resist every urge to return to ways of thinking and living according to the flesh. Open blinded eyes today. Reveal Christ today. Strengthen faith today through the ministry of your word and spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.